Welcome to another episode of the Supply Chain Ambassador Podcast. I'm your host, Bruno, helping you navigate the world of supply chain in a fun and engaging way. On today's podcast, I want to learn a little bit more about logistics and material management, and I have someone great and phenomenal to help me understand that in the context of supply chain within the public service. Helping me to understand that today is Richard Quinn. Thank you very much, Bruno. I'm curious to know what new and exciting projects are you currently working on? I guess the newest project really, something that's not necessarily routine is this is the material management practitioner initiative or project. And I coined the MMP term material management practitioner because people that are doing material management within the material group and then outside of the Canadian forces are not all within one occupational group. We know there are at least six occupational groups within the public service that do material management related work. We have general technical, the GTs, EGs, ELs, CRs, and ASs. And we even have some engineers who will quietly tell you they feel they are material managers too, but they don't want to say that out loud because they're engineers. So we clearly have the majority of them are material management technicians. They've recently changed the term from supply tech to material management technician. So they're in there, but we have traffic technicians that are involved in the physical handling and movement and shipping of goods. And we have some technical specialists that do technical inspection, right? That's a material management function in some ways as well. And then we have logistics officers. All right. Now I won't go into the other technical trades for the Canadian forces, but so just on public service side, it's quite varied, which is why I said we can't, we need to come up with something that captures seven or eight different occupational groups. So that's why I said material management practitioner and the amount of material management practitioning somebody does is really dependent upon the role they have within their own organization. So. This is why it's a challenge because I've been asked to examine what we currently have as an existing training and development program for persons in the material management domain or stream of activity and see if there are any gaps, what's missing. Try to build the the work areas such that somebody like yourself, if you wanted to spend some time in the material management domain, to expand your knowledge and especially the connectivity between the two domains. And then, okay, I've done that for two or three years. Now I'd like to go back in the a more of a procurement focused domain. That's okay. On your way up from PG1 to PG6. And what we're looking to try to do is so that to reach the position of PG6 and eventually perhaps compete for an executive job, we want people to have the opportunity of working in both domains and still get to the PG6 level as opposed to what is generally believed to be where if you want to be a PG6, you got to focus on procurement. That that when we tell people there are a number of PG6s in the group today that don't have procurement focused portfolios and haven't done procurement at all, they're somewhat surprised. And part of the reason that the training and development of this project is stood up is that there hasn't been enough attention to what the material management domain specialists are doing and how they're doing it. And it's leading to observations from external groups like the Office of the Procurement Audubonsman or the Office of the Auditor General primarily, because we get, we have them in our, within our group and our department on an annual basis now for the past six years doing audits 
of our material management and accounting processes. And we believe there are errors being made through either uh, a lack of knowledge, a lack of training, and hopefully not a lack of caring on the part of our, our team members. But I was asked, Richard, we need to fix this. And this is part of the reason why I got pulled out of the job I was doing as the publications depot section head. They wanted someone who could take this on and figure out what is it that we still aren't doing well enough because we're not training people at all or the training is not sufficient enough. So that's what our mandate is. And we just completed last week our very first focused working group with people who are in the role of supply manager. And we had participation from all the major EPM teams over within the material group. And we were, able, we're, we're into validating. We think you're supposed to be doing this based on what the supply administration manual says. Do you do these things? Right? And it's yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. If it's no, we got to think, wait a minute. If it's no, but it still needs to get done, how does it get done? We realize, and what we come to understand is that the people who have roles like RCO, records control officer, supply manager, and lifecycle material manager slash technical authority, the three people work almost like the three amigos. They all work together to get the material management side of things done fully and, and accurately. So we've completed a supply manager working group. We have the next series of working group. The next working group is specifically with technical authorities. And we're looking forward to that one because as a material management specialist, it's an area that's actually a little less known to me in terms of what is it that you know these tech authorities are doing? I can read the SAM and it says, hey, they have these responsibilities in this role, but now we're gonna figure out, do they know what the SAM actually says they're supposed to be doing? And and if not, then we're going to say, how do we fix this? Because this is why things are, this is why we're having mistakes is because they don't even know they're supposed to be doing them. So this is, we're in that discovery phase and in the project. And that's the exciting part. The real work is, okay, well, now we figured we've got a problem. How do we actually solve it? And that's, for me, that's not the fun part. For me, it's always, hey, what did I just learn today? But then when I have to fix the problem, well, then I go, oh, geez, I don't really want to. I'm much more, I'm much better at finding problems than fixing problems, put it that way. <laughs> I can't wait to, when you, your working group comes around to the procurement side to find a whole lack of problems there. Yeah, we do intend to have a working group with people who have the role of procurement authority, right? Because that's that bridge. Contracting authority is, we see as just being the, actually doing the legalese type stuff. Procurement authority that's really into that uh, blending of what the client wants, what the system dictates you have to have in place in order to create that that a successful vehicle of a contract. And, the, 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 and I think we're going to find that the PAs don't really have much depth on the side. And that is something we're going to, we're going to, we expect we're going to be putting out there because all of our work that we're doing, we're not doing that independently. Uh, the PG CMO office that's uh, managed by very capably by Katie Abrams and her team of people, they're in deep with us. And we're also connected to the professionalization working group. That is not only looking at the material management domain specialists, but the procurement domain specialists and the engineering domain specialists. All three end up working together really when it comes to solving the acquisition and then maintaining, sustaining that platform throughout its life cycle. It's not surprising. We've had, we hold on to things for a long time in the D&D &D, 
called Sikorsky helicopter may being one of them. It came into service the year I was born in 1964. 50 years later, we just finally got rid of it. And nobody anticipated that when they bought it. What advice can you give to some to our listeners? Much of what I would offer as advice I've already interspersed in terms of what I've said to you already. First thing I said is learn about what the other domain functions are. So if you're a procurement domain specialist, learn about the material management domain and vice versa, because your listeners need to realize that to be truly an effective uh, supporters of the clients, that, that doesn't happen unless these two domains work together. And in doing so, it affords anticipating what the other domains needs are going to be. And then you can move forward with a requirement sooner rather than later. And you're more likely to get it right the first time if the two teams work together, as opposed to the two solitudes and throwing things back and forth over the fence kind of deal. You got to know. So you have to know, like I said, the rules and the resources that the material management domain works with compared to what the procurement domain works with. If you understand the limitations and the constraints and the rules that each domain works under, then you know what you collectively what you're going to be capable of delivering for the client. And ultimately, that's what a procurement specialist wants to do and a material management specialist to do is support the client, right? And you, you, you got to know that in the, our solutions are never just singular domain. The two end up working together no matter what. You can't get stuff on the shelf unless somebody buys it. Yeah. My advice is learn what the other, other domain does generally, but more specifically, the rules and the resources that apply in that domain. Because then I know I can ask Bruno of this because I know he can deliver on this because it fits within his domain's rules and resources. So that's my major point of advice. The other one would be pursue getting the certification in procurement or material management under that's managed under the Treasury Board Secretariat. It's currently got a certain format and requirements. It's in transition. It's going to be transitioning into something. I can't, I'm not at liberty to tell you what it is because nothing's been officially decided yet. In fact, I have a meeting about it, in fact, this afternoon, because I'm on the, I'm on that committee or that board as a departmental rep for the certification program. And I get, and, you know, take those courses that are offered for free through MMTC or CSPTS that are in the other domain, as well as in your own domain, set aside time. It's part of your workday, invest in yourself because it helps me want to help you. If I know you're helping yourself at the same time, there's effort on your part. And I guess the last thing would be create what I call a master resume. Given the way that comp competitive process works within the public service, you're always having to submit brief descriptions of your experience as part of an application process. You've, if you, as part of, as you go through your career and you collect those experiences and put them in a master resume. When it comes time to apply for competition, it really is almost a cut and paste opportunity for you at that point, which allows you to discover a last minute competition opening that you didn't know about because you weren't tracking it. Somebody just told you about it. Well, oh, shoot, it closes tonight at midnight, like the Shared Services Canada one for PG2s. Yeah. It closes tonight. And that's happened to me where, oh, shoot, I forgot all about that. And because I had the master resume, I was able to collect what I would need in order to respond to the, the essential merit criteria. And then if they happen to ask you for asset qualification, asset criteria, you, you can pull that in. It makes it very, makes it fairly simple to do. And then obviously if you advance to a best fit interview as part of a process, having that master resume out there helps you 
put forth the best impression that you have the acquired depth and breadth of experience and knowledge that you're seeking because you, you don't forget about it because you've made note of it in, in, in your resume. So this is why having a master resume, and I call it a master because it's not the one you would circulate to potential hiring managers because, you know, mine's 10 pages long. No one's going to read a 10 page resume, but I've got it set up so that it's broken up into experience, financial experience, HR experience, leadership experience, qualifications, training, education. So depending on the competition, I just pick and choose the pieces and throw them in there. And when I've shared that, I, when I've shared that approach to my mentees that I've had over the last four years, <clears throat> I think almost every one of them has at least adopted that practice of maintaining a master resume. So in terms of advice, that's why I would offer to our, my fellow public servants that are looking to move up or site or laterally looking for a new opportunity, help them. It helps them get a better chance. Note to self, start a master resume. Note right. to self, start a master resume. Exactly. Yeah. Any final call to actions to our listeners? In the end, set aside time to learn more about supply chain management. So if you're in a specialist, that means procurement. If you're a procurement specialist, it means material management and look at all elements of a supply chain from planning and acquisition to material reception, material and use and operation and maintenance to divestment, which is has come to light. The whole issue of divestment, there are some very senior people in the department and in the government who've had to learn what the actual regulations are that govern, you know, the idea, hey, we're just going to donate aid in the form of material to the Ukraine. Madame, Monsieur, it's not as straightforward as you have made it seem because we actually have regulations, which you as members of the parliament have put in place that dictate what we can or cannot do or how we're supposed to do something. And if you find them cumbersome, well, I guess you'll have to do something about it because we have to follow them. So it, it's not an instantaneous grab off the shelf, stick on an aircraft and fly it over to the Ukraine in 24 hours, we drop ammunition on their doorstep. No, it's a little bit more involved in the disposal part or the divestment part of our supply chain has come to light in terms of, hey, here's, remember I told you the second R, we loan what the requirement is, right? Give aid to the Ukraine. The next part was the resources, capability and capacity. Got that part, capacity. How much can we donate in terms of before we deplete ourselves? That's that That's that part. But then it's the rules. Holy smokes. They come bang, smack your head. Here are the rules of what it takes to donate material. No, monsieur, you don't actually have the authority to sign off on that. It takes the minister to sign off on it. Or it takes a governor and council decision, cabinet decision to make that happen. So you figure out the time schedule now. If you want this done, bye. Here are the rules. That's why I work on those four R's, right? Yeah. You need to know that those getting un understanding what somebody wants of you is one thing, yeah. but saying, can I actually do it? Can I deliver the goods, so to speak? You're going to be restrained by the resources yeah. and the rules. So if you don't know what they are, learn them real mm -hmm. quick, because then you're able to sit around a table and somebody says, Hey, can I do this? And you're going to be able to go, yes. Or maybe the answer is no, you can't. And I could certainly share you with you a number of stories that where my approach panned out and we, I made certain people recognize that what they just said they wanted done could not be done. But I, because I knew the rules and the resources, I would say, 
tuck, 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 tuck. And they went, ooh, okay. We're going to take this back and we'll re-examine this. But if you give me, if you ask me to do this, I can do that. You just asked me to do this. I can't do that. Ah, so I came back with member of the redundancy. If you want me to do this, I can't. But if you wanted me to do that, I could. And that's because I studied the resources and the rules and I had a plan, the plan B. If you can't have this, I can give you this. And they went, ah, then we'll take that. Okay. So that's how I approach things. Wow. <laughs> I learned so much today. This is great and exciting. You can always call me independently outside of your podcast. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you for that. I will leave off with the quote of the day from Eleanor Roosevelt, who was an American political figure, diplomat, and activist, who once said, if life were predictable, it would cease to be life and be without flavor. I think it just goes to, to a bit of our talking points today where we can't stay in our bubble when, when it comes to supply chain. We've got to expand our knowledge and really see the whole picture beyond what our siloed function is. And it makes things more interesting, a little bit more unpredictable, but also very valuable to us all. The key word is chain. Mm -hmm. We're linked. We've all heard that analogy. We're as only as strong as the weakest link. That is so true. You don't want to be the weakest link because you didn't take the time to know more that it, that you have access to learn, right? When you don't have access to it, that's one thing. But if you, the, if it's there and you don't take it up, then you become the weakest link in this supply chain. And you don't, nobody wants to be considered the weakest link. So, right? And no, and no reference to the TV show, but, <laughs> um, but, but use the dynamic. Don't be All the right. weakest link. <laughs> Don't be the weakest link. Exactly. Thank you, Richard. 